Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Ingianni. And today, we're going to talk about the importance of having cross-functional teams when you're developing embedded systems in an Agile context. Luca, tell me what you mean by that. You know, as we're talking specifically about embedded systems, they are, by their very nature, cross-functional already, aren't they? Um, you know, and maybe maybe we should just stop and define what we mean by cross-functional. So there's this thing from, from Agile uh, development where they say you should have a cross-functional team, which means all of the skills that you need in order to build and deliver your product should be present within the team. As opposed to, what's the, As, what's the wrong way of doing it? Well, the wrong way of doing it is being dependent on lots of outside help to, to actually get something done. Like m maybe sort of the, the poster child for, not, for how not to do it would be to have a bunch of different departments and everybody has to do their part in building a product. You have your, I don't know, front-end department and you have your database department and you have your, uh, what do I know, storage department and, every, and you have many handovers from you know one department to the other you've got a specification group somewhere upstream over there and and it's just super slow and super cumbersome and and there's no real way to gather feedback from you know that that flows back um opposite the the stream of the development work and it's the way that traditionally you know, stuff has been done in IT organizations. Right. It's interesting the, you know, when you, when you propose this topic, uh, um, I was confused at first just because I, I was, my first reaction when you said, you know, a, a core tenant of, of agile development is to build cross-functional teams where people are actually, uh, knowledgeable about more than one area, kind of have that T-shaped expertise, where they're experts in their area, but they have knowledge of others and they're, they closely overlap with the other members of the team who are uh, responsible for producing that product. And my first reaction was like, duh, that's how I've always done it. But I realized, uh, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it's not like my entire career, the organization of teams has been up to me. It's not my brilliant uh, organizational skills that have led to that. It's the fact that I've worked for small companies um, almost exclusively in my professional career. Um, you know, I, I started off in aerospace, but I worked for this small unmanned, uh, uh, area of UAV startup, uh, and they were acquired by Boeing, but, you know, so we jumped from 60 employees to 150,000, but we were not <laughs> absorbed into a big Boeing office. We kept our own independent office for a while. We kept our own independent way of doing things. Uh, so that was, just because it was a small team, it was by very, by its nature, very cross-functional and interdisciplinary. Um, and again, when I went to the automotive industry, I worked for a small, a, a very small company, which is a rarity in the automotive industry. Um, and then in medical devices, small companies are much more the norm. Uh, you know, there are there are obviously quite a few large medical device companies, but the industry has not undergone that consolidation that say the aerospace or automotive industries has undergone. Uh, and so there are lots, lots and lots of medical device startups where it's a few people in a room <laughs> and now it's in a virtual room. Um, but everyone knows each other's business, but it sounds like your career has had 
uh, a lot of experiences in larger organizations where that's just not the case. Exactly. Like the, the first company I worked for, um, where I was part of a test team, and this this test team alone was, I guess, 40 people, and it wasn't the only test team. And there was, of course, a bunch of separate development teams and, and whatnot. Um, so it was very much the opposite of cross-functionality. You did one very specific part of the entire work of creating and validating this this helicopter. As it, you know, it was a helicopter. Um, so yes, I I think I I have, or rather, I have a suspicion that your experience is actually a bit atypical. And also, and, and maybe that's the more important aspect, just because you have a bunch of people in a room doesn't mean they're a team. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll certainly agree with that. It's uh, so, okay. So let, let's break this down a little bit. So um, walk me through again, kind of the reasons why this important. Let me actually, let me make it, you already did in, in some fashion in an overview. Let me take a stab at it and you can correct me if you if you hear anything that I say that it's incorrect. So uh, the whole point is to make work flow through your organization more quickly and get to uh, whatever that that next end goal, be it like get the market to uh, get the product to market or get the prototype finished so you can get feedback. Whatever it is, you you want to move work through the system so that you can get feedback more quickly. And that is hampered when you have people in disparate locations uh, who maybe have different goals. Maybe they, you know, if if someone is reporting to their functional manager, their goal may not be to get the product to market or to get the prototype into the hands of users. Uh, They may Mm -hmm. have competing goals that don't actually serve that. Uh, And so you want to organize your teams to reflect the importance of getting work through your system quickly so that you can get feedback quickly and iterate and improve. Is that a fair summary of it? Yes, I think that that fits very well. Um, and it, it's actually even more than that in the sense that if you have people who are too far apart from one another, whether that means physically or just mentally, um, they don't even have a common language. So even if they wanted to share feedback, who knows whether they could? Like, does a mechanical engineer even know how to talk to a software engineer? Do, do they share the same terms for the same things? Um, you know, much less the fact that they that they actually see very different realities. Like, if if you talk about the product, do they even agree what the product is? I hope so. I guess I haven't I haven't been in a situation where that's not the case, but I guess the 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 classic situation that I've seen is is the is the blame game of okay, something doesn't work. Oh, it must be hardware. No, it must be software and and you know that I've seen that happen a little bit. It's I haven't seen it happen as badly as you might hear in, you know, memes that are passed around the internet, but uh but you know I would say that that overall, I've had the good fortune to be on teams where, uh, a, we were all in the same room or or in at least in the same building, pretty close to each other, uh, and b, everyone did have that um, 
you know, esprit de corps, like the, the, we're all in this together and let's get this thing done. And, uh, you know, especially I, I can think back when I was working in the automotive industry in this little hybrid vehicle startup, there were a couple of times when we, when that blame game erupted, like, oh, I think it's hardware. No, I think it's software. But, but very quickly, both parties realized, okay, let's just sit down and work the problem together. Um, and, and even though it might have been locally inefficient, where at any given time, maybe only one person is probing something or only one person is typing on the computer. And so the other person felt like they might have been wasting their time. You know, in the global sense, it was much more efficient because two people went in and the problem was solved, you know, as quickly as the problem could be solved and we could move on. Um, so I have had the good fortune where where I haven't I haven't had people who really say, I've done my schematic, I'm done you know, you handle it from here on out and, and had that siloed way of thinking. Um, so mm. I take it you have seen that in your career. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, <laughs> that's, that's... I'm so sorry. Like the yes, um, it's the traditional way of working. Like, here's me and my department, and over there are the other guys. Um, and just as you said, it, it creates not just... Um, maybe an inability to even speak to one another because you don't have the same words and the same ideas, but it also creates this conflict of interest. Like maybe I don't actually want to do right by you, but rather I need to please my manager. Right. So have you, have you seen this recently? I see lots of evidence of that in my in my training. So I give a lot of agile trainings and, and DevOps trainings for large corporations. And at least the ones in Germany, the ones that I encounter, are still very much permeated by this spirit, even though the engineers on the ground realize that this is actually a terrible way to do things and they would really want to change it, but they feel powerless to actually change that because they can't even see the entire value creation chain. You know, out of the out of the fog appears a product in front of them and they do a couple of things to it and then they push it over on the other side into the fog and it kind of appears and then two years later it pops onto the market. Oh, that sounds like such a terrible way to work. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so common. Um, and, you know, they... This is why I even got into DevOps. I started out as a consulting engineer and I, you know, I tinkered with hardware as you do. And I was part of so many different teams and they all worked in this horrendous way. Or, you know, I, I'm maybe being a bit unfair. It's not like they did sloppy work or anything, but it it was just noticeable that they made it harder on themselves than it had to be. And they realize that because they are smart guys, but they somehow imagine that this is just the way the world is. Like, hmm. yes, development is hard, and so we must suffer. Right. They just really didn't see the alternative. Exactly. And and when you're, especially if you are a, you know, even a, a senior engineer where you have, you know, a good reputation, some some authority that has been built from your your technical and social uh, prowess, as it were. Mm -hmm. You're still you're still uh, hamstrung or handcuffed by the organization, like by the way that your your company is organized. 
and I know I've seen that in, in many of your writings, basically, tell someone's law, like show me a, how a team is organized and I'll tell you what they produce. So, like I, I'm butchering it. So correct me on that. Yeah, yeah. Con- Conway's law. Yeah. Um, few people I think are familiar with the name, but I think essentially everyone is familiar with the phenomenon. Um, so Mr. Conway back in the late sixties, um, analyzed organizations and the products they created. And he realized that, uh, a product architecture, a product shape always mirrored that of the organization that produced it. Like if you have three teams working on a particular product, you will end up with a product that has three distinct elements to it. And that could be a software product or a hardware product or a or an embedded system where it's a mix of both. Precisely. And you also notice it's not called Conway's suggestion. It's called Conway's law. And it's called <laughs> that for a reason. Um, this is just something that inevitably happens. Um, and it, it sort of, it, it can go both way, ways. Either the architecture of a product will shape itself after the, the organizational structure of, of a company or the other way around. And this is when you get what's called a shadow org chart which is something you frequently encounter in organizations where, yes, yes, there's an official org chart where, you know, somebody, somebody's boss or somebody in, is in this department or that, but everybody on the ground knows, no, in order to get stuff done, you actually need to call Joe over there because he's informally the guy who knows the right things or calls the shots or something like that. That is because of a mismatch between the architecture and the org chart. Interesting. So I, I, I don't know if we want to pivot the conversation this direction so soon, but I, I was thinking, okay, so you're an engineer in a large company that is organized in this fashion where you have big departments uh, and, mm-hmm. and any given product you know, has to have input from each of those departments. And so you, know, you might have a whole product line uh, or, or many product lines and you know, so, so you have, I don't know, 25 discrete products, each of which have to pass through electrical engineering and industrial design and and firmware development and then app development where they're, you know, building mobile apps to talk to them. So you're stuck in a company like this. Is there is there anything that a, you know, a lowly engineer, maybe even a senior or a principal engineer can do? to try to help this situation. Do you, I, I feel like in the absence of any uh, coordinated effort, it turns into the shadow org chart, just like you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe in some organizations where management would actively fight you, that's the best you can actually do is to set up a shadow org chart <laughs> in the sense of try to get things done and, and that will naturally fall out. Or can you can you advocate for okay let's try let's do a trial basis like this particular product let's assemble a smaller team of people from diff- different disciplines and try this out in that in and see what the result is how how have you seen that transformation maybe actually happen yeah that's an excellent question and of course it's a very difficult question in the sense that <laughs> that's why is- i asked you yeah <laughs> well thank you <laughs> <laughs> Well, but that's that's a little more your your expertise in the sense of like you do training, you do DevOps trainings for organizations. Um, exactly, and I, so I, that's I, you've you've faced this problem before. Yes, this is this is the 
typical situation that I find if I come into a company to consult them and, and try and help them along um, on on a trajectory that gets them to be, you know, just better at what they do, quite bluntly, um, is that you need to work on all of the aspects at once. So first of all, it's it's something changing the way you work is something deeply personal because in in some sense we are we define ourselves by our work and how we do things and so if i were to just sort of come in and tell them that they're wrong they would take offense and i think they would be right sure so in my experience you have to attack from both ends at once you have to try and change the mindset or, or, you know, start working on, on changing the mindset of the people on the ground. And at the same time, you need to do concrete steps to make it visible to them that A, change is occurring and B, it's actually good for them personally. Like, I, I, I can understand any engineer who says, yeah, yeah, this, you know, those are all fancy ideas, but what's in it for me? Right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I already know how I'm working right now, and I've made my peace with that, you know, and there is no no difficult and maybe even scary work, work involved in just staying the way I am. So why should I change? So what tends to happen is um, to have palpable examples of how, for instance, automation really does change uh product development for the better by being able to, I don't know, quickly flash new firmware onto onto a device, onto a prototype device, and really being able to test out new variants almost in real time, which I think cannot be taken for granted in uh, in embedded systems development. Sometimes it's, it's a big deal and you need to get the electrical guys on board and you need to get the software guys on board and then you need to hunt down a prototype. Right. If you even, you know, shorten this from days to hours, you've already won a lot. And there's no reason it should even stay that way. But why, why doesn't it just take minutes? Because it could and it should. And then you can use that as sort of a, a nucleus for condensation and say, look, um, here is a change. Here is how it feels. Wouldn't you like more of that? Wouldn't you like to work in a different fashion and then you can sort of get that sure all right so so <laughs> it's funny i think we're we're we might be delving a little bit into the topic that we were going to cover next week which is how to get started so i want to i want to pull back a little bit and and keep the focus on you know this cross functional team idea and mm-hmm. maybe speak to the members of the audience who are in companies that are organized in this what we're 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 positing is the the wrong way uh, where you have these big departments that are that are for a specific function, very siloed. Mm-hmm. What are so? What are some of the common arguments for organizing that way? And and so I want to try to anticipate. I want to anticipate the pushback, saying you mm-hmm. should you should change the way your company is organized, and you should break it up into product teams. Mm-hmm. So what are what are some of the 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 arguments that people will use to counter that? No, we actually should stay like this is the way this is the reason we organized functionally in the first place because 
maybe it's from an efficiency, a, a, a local efficiency argument where uh, you don't want, you know, if, if you're, if an electrical engineer is assigned to a product and that product doesn't need electrical engineering work at that exact moment, then that electrical engineer's time is wasted and they should be off working on another project. So I know let's gather all the electrical engineers in one place and mm-hmm. we'll just have work flowing into that department and work flowing out. And they're all replaceable cogs in this machine. And, and we can just allocate resources and be very efficient. Um, is, is that the reason maybe organizations were, were organized like that in the first place? That is exactly the correct reason. Yes. Um, and this is not just like conjecture. This is actually provable. It is much more eff- efficient. Like you get more utilization, very mechanistically speaking, out of every single cog in that machine, out of every single engineer. Because, you know, the the alternative of assigning an engineer to a particular project, you will never have a perfect fit. Like, when will you ever need exactly, I don't know, one electrical engineers? You might need only a third of an electrical engineer, or you need one and a half. But, you know, one and a half in electrical engineers, that turns into a pretty bloody affair. <laughs> So so you're faced with choosing to either go with one and slowing down the entire team because, you know, the workload is just too high for this single person or assigning two and wasting half an engineer's worth of, of time. So, yes, that's just less efficient as opposed to, as you, as you described, pooling all the electrical engineers and distributing work flexibly among them. But on the other hand, it slows everything down tremendously. You you know, you, you have those long lead times. You will have handovers. You will need to have budget meetings about who gets which engineer when. And then, you know, if, if this engineer gets stuck because a project takes a bit longer than expected, it has knock-on effects on all the other projects because now their slice of engineering time doesn't become available. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of nightmare, of course, that many people in, in many companies are familiar with. And we've become so used to this to this way of working that it it's literally unimaginable to a lot of people I talk to. They they really try their hardest to understand, and they and they think they have, but then they fall back into their old ways just because they're so used to working this way. Sure. And I, and I think, uh, you know, when we started and I was talking about how in my experience, I, I have not experienced this. It's basically just by luck. Again, it's not, it's not through any great fundamental insight from either myself or the, you know, the, the leadership teams of the companies that I was in at the time. Um, just because they were small, they were less subject to those forces. Uh, I actually, I misspoke. I will say the, the, the first company I worked for, the UAV startup, before they were purchased by Boeing, uh, that the the person who led that company uh, was all about interdisciplinary actions and er, er, interactions, and he was actually famous for you know taking two people and, and someone was working on a problem and they had you know they had spent the requisite time of okay banging their head against this see if I could solve it myself I can't. And they would keep banging their head against it. And he would grab them, you know, metaphorically by the ear 
and bring them over and say, um, you know, Rich, meet MJ. Like, and of course, these two people knew each other very well, but he's like, you two need to be talking about this right now. Uh, and so he would, he would constantly be kind of wandering around the building looking for people who were struggling on their own against a problem and needed to bring in someone else's expertise and, and talk about it collaboratively. Um, and so that, that was a great example and, and really kind of a lucky thing that that was my first, uh, job out of school, uh, was working Mm -hmm. for such a person in that way. Um, but certainly in other cases, it was simply because I was in a small organization that, that they, uh, they were less, you know, subject to those awful forces of, of being siloed. Uh, but you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you can have people in the same room and they still have the same, the wrong attitude. Uh, and so the same effects can still happen even in a small group when people don't, I guess, when they, when they just do siloed work and they say, I'm responsible for exactly this. And as soon as it leaves my desk, it's not my problem. Uh, so have, have you seen organizations like that where, where it is a small team and it's not, you know, there is maybe two electrical engineers and two mechanical engineers and two software engineers, yet you still have that siloed way of thinking and that siloed way of working? Oh, definitely. Um, there's, um, and it's, I, I think that is actually something that's very difficult to overcome especially in the embedded sector, because you, again, by by default, you have three different disciplines of engineering that come from very different traditions and have have very different ways of seeing the world and seeing their product. You have your mechanical engineers and electrical engineers uh, who, to this day, in my observation, are still very reluctant to, to really think about software other than that it's maybe annoying. <laughs> like I, I remember was when I was studying mechanical engineering, I, I thought I was going to find all manner of computer geeks. There was nobody. I was pretty much the only one who studied elect- uh, mechanical engineering and actually like cared about computers and, uh, and wanted to try their hand at programming and, and those kinds of things. And I think it's very much the opposite way as well. Like, if you show a mechanism to um, to computer scientist, they will look at it as the German saying goes, uh, like a cow looks at a, at a clockwork. Uh, <laughs> and so, even if everybody is, you know, meaning well and and willing uh, willing to give it a try, they don't share a common language. They're all called engineers, but but somehow they're all you know, looking at the world in very different ways mm-hmm. down to the way of how they write like requirements documents, which for all of them are words on, on paper, literally or metaphorically. But even there, the, the, the way they write those words and what words they write will be very, very different. Interesting. It's, uh, I, I'm realizing that we, we both have a similar background in that way that, so my degrees are in mechanical engineering sounds like mm-hmm. uh, yours are too. Uh, yet both, you know, we, we both now work in the software world. And so just fundamentally by our, our career paths, we are interdisciplinary. Um, 
And that's that's yeah, when you know in yeah. my in my embedded software development, I I bring the fact that you know I can review schematics with the electrical engineers. I can uh, you know debug mechanical problems. I can do simulation and analysis of some mechanical mechanism to make sure that the motor is sized correctly. And um, a lot of people who say study computer science in in college could be perfectly capable of doing those things. They just don't have that training. And if they if they've allowed themselves to kind of get solidified and too solidified in that career path, you know, they could get five or 10 years in and never have interacted with anything physical. And then it's really hard to break out of that uh, and kind of open your eyes and and look at the larger product and say, okay, it's not my job just to write some code. I need to make this product work. And, you know, my code interacts with the motors and the LEDs and the sensors and and everything else that's in this embedded product. And I've, I have to understand those systems that I'm interacting with. It'd be a hard lesson to learn. Exactly. And and in, in all of the embedded systems teams that I've been on, there has always been one person who had the explicit job of trying to integrate those three disciplines. Mm, um, sure. And this, the this systems engineer. Role, exactly. It was called the systems engineer. And, and they were exactly the person who, you know, may, maybe the requirements called for, I don't know, filtering some sensor input. And they would then try to figure out should we should we i don't know build a sensor that just by its mechanical properties would would do that filtering already maybe through inertia or something should we have maybe an electrical filtering element somewhere in the signal path leading to the microcontroller sure or should we do uh, filtering debouncing whatever in software um, on the microcontroller and so you know from their perspective it would be would be a, a systems diagram and it would have a filtering element somewhere. And then they would figure out, okay, well, who does that job of filtering? Does it, is it something for the mechanical guys or for the electrical guys or for the software guys? So that all of those people could sort of stay in their happy little bubbles. But I'm wondering if that's actually helpful. Oh, I see. You're wondering if the existence of a systems engineer to to essentially allow them to stay in their bubbles. If I, I agree with you, that is not a helpful application. I would say, uh, so for me, the systems engineer, and I, I have played that role several times, is the person who drags each of those people kicking and screaming out of their bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, and again, this is this sort of similar to that, uh, the the person who ran, ran the UAV startup that I started my career in. Uh, you know, he... He was the the CEO of the company, but he was extremely technical and he had that systems level view mm. and would do exactly that and would drag people kicking and screaming together so that they could talk about the interface of their work and uh, and how it was supposed to work together. So, all right. So we've we've had a good discussion here. I think it's so it's pretty clear that uh, we are advocating to break down, break down the silos uh, between the different engineering functions. And even mm-hmm. in a larger, you know, not just engineering, um, uh, uh, marketing, business development, uh, uh, the people who were interact, kind of the voice of the customer, um, who are coming up with the idea with the product in the first place, and kind of looking at user needs. Um, mm-hmm. All of those people really need to collaborate and work together. And the way to do that effectively is to form a a team that is dedicated to a product rather than yes. departments of functions that work on many products. 
And while it is, while you may not get the utilization of every person, which was your point before, Mm -hmm. that's not the important part. The important part is getting products to market, is getting, and earlier in the product development cycle, getting prototypes into the hands of testers and getting feedback. So moving, like work that is not shipped (laughs) Mm-hmm. is actually useless. And so if you if you have great utilization of all your electrical engineers and they're all busy, but you don't actually have products going to market and then feedback from those products going back in your organization so that you can iterate them and improve them, then you've just you're doing it wrong. You're set up you're set up incorrectly. Exactly. And actually it's even worse. Like unshipped work is not just wasted. It's it's or, or it's not just, you know, neutrally not not giving you an advantage it's it's literal waste you still need to work with it you need to still deal with it you need to maintain it 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 takes up capacity to not ship why would you do that to yourself right any other uh any other closing thoughts before we wrap this one up oh man i could talk for hours about this subject, <laughs> but i think <laughs> I think this episode uh, has been fascinating and it's been going on long enough. I think uh, we take pity on our listeners and uh, <laughs> and I keep my thoughts to myself until the next episode. Fair enough. Well, uh, uh, thank you again, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been the third episode of the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.